The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're really glad that, that you're here this morning. We, uh, we have been in a series in Genesis since November. We hopped out for a little Christmas sermon series, and we hopped out of the, the study of Genesis over the Easter uh, season. We actually had five sermons, five services in three weeks over Easter. We called that little series Life in His Name as we looked at the Gospel of John. We had a, a Palm Sunday service, a Good Friday service, an Easter sunrise service, an Easter day service. And then last week, we had a, 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 the last sermon in that series in the 21st chapter of John. If you weren't here last week, uh, the Apostle Peter was here in our sanctuary, and he shared a little bit of a story. So today I figured, since we're jumping back in Genesis, I'm going to don the persona of Noah today. So we're going to build a boat for the next 35 minutes. Just kidding. I'm not doing that. But if you didn't have a chance to catch last week's sermon, uh, Don Baldrica taught. It was just a really unique and uh, insightful and uh, a beautiful depiction and picture of the, the life of the Apostle Peter and how he went from being user to usable for God. And I encourage you to do that. Today, we're finally back in Genesis. We have a handful of weeks left. We're going to finish up this series in June. Uh, but if you've been with us since November, we've kind of journeyed through the first six chapters. We, we've looked at creation, and we looked at the creation of Adam and Eve, the institution of marriage, the cultural mandate. We saw in Genesis chapter 3, the heartbreaking results of the fall when Adam and Eve chose to rebel uh, against God. And, and then in chapter 4, we saw the children of Adam and Eve, Cain, murdered Abel, his brother, the first the first children to be born on planet Earth, one murdered the other. And then in chapter 4, we saw the line of Cain and the, the increasing depravity of humankind in chapter 4. But then at the end of the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see where God blesses Adam and Eve with another son, Seth. And it says of the people at that time on the Earth that they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we get to look at the Sethite uh, genealogy, those who were came in, in Seth and then his son Enosh and these generations that lead us up to Noah. And we actually were introduced in, in Genesis chapter 5 to someone named Enoch. And Enoch was said to be a man who walked with God. And then we get to Noah at the end of chapter 5. And then here in chapter 6, if, uh, back on March 21st, we had our last sermon in this, in this series. And it says of Noah that he also walked with God. Last time we were together, we, we looked at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. I would encourage you to open up there now. And last time we were here, those first eight verses, we were able to kind of, the way Moses wrote this first six, uh, this first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6 was we got the lens of God. And so we got to see what God sees when he looked at the pre-flood world and he saw a grievous depravity of humankind. We got to see what God feels and he had a grieved heart for the way in which humanity had turned their backs against him. And then lastly, we saw, we got to see what God does. We see that he, he chooses Moses through whom his grace flows. This week we pick up in, in verse 9, and we get to see kind of the pre-flood account leading up to the flood in, in, in chapter 7 and beyond. Let's begin here in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. 
The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Verse 18. But, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every living thing of all flesh. In, you shall bring two of all sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Would you pray with me? Father, as we, as we look at this text, this very well-known text, God, as we look at these words, God, would you guard us against sort of glossing over in our mind and, and, and saying, oh, I've been here before and not hearing what it is you have to say to us today through these words. God, help us as we, as we open up your word, read of your word. God, help us to, to hear from you, God, by the power of your spirit. Would you, would you bring conviction where we need to feel conviction, God? Would you open up ears where we need to have our ears open, God? Would you, would you open up blinded eyes where we need to see, God? We invite you. God, with humility and reverence, we invite you to meet us in this place today as we look at your word. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what troubles me? And it's been lately, I've been very troubled by this, stories of people who walk away from the faith. Have you seen some of those high-profile stories lately of, of people who were once in, in positions of high influence in ministry and then they just walk away? People either choose to deny Jesus outright or, or they slowly drift from him into, into practical denial. I've been reading these stories of high-profile people who are just turning their backs on the faith. And then as I look back over 22 years of ministry in a bunch of different contexts, there are people in the history who I worked with, people who I labored with side-by-side side over the years who have, who have walked away from the faith. Now, maybe they're not posting on Facebook that they're now an atheist, but there's practical atheism in the way in which they live. It breaks my heart. For some, it was a hidden sin that just slowly took ownership of their inner world and just pulled them away. For some, it was a pain, an affliction, a season of life that knocked them off their feet and they could never get back up and they slipped into practical atheism. And for others, it was an intellectual decision to leave the faith. They're like the ones that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 7, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. But it's troubling to me to see people walk away from the faith. It happens. The word used to describe these people is an ugly word. I hate this word. It's called apostate. To be apostate is to go from claiming Christ as Lord to denying him. And I'm so discouraged by these stories. My heart grieves for those entangled in a habitual sin that robs them of their faith. My heart grieves for those who are embittered with life's afflictions. My, my heart grieves for those who cannot get out of the maze of intellectualism. However... What greatly encourages me, what puts life back into my soul, are those faithful saints who steadfastly walk with God. 
over the course of a lifetime through many mountaintop experiences and many, many valley experiences, leaving a powerful testimony of obedience and worship. That's so encouraging to me. I share this because the last time that we were in Genesis, on March 21st, we were in this text, these first eight verses of chapter 6, which are filled with with controversy, if you will. There's not unanimity, there's not uh, agreement among Christianity about how to interpret some of the nuance of these texts. Now, the main idea is still the main idea. That's not debated. But some of the little things in verses 1 through 8 are debated among scholars and theologians. And I spent a lot of time back in March unpacking some of these, these debated things, trying to give us the lay of the landscape. But as I sat down this week, and as I looked at chapter 6, and I looked at verses 9 through 22, but really the whole chapter, and I looked at the larger context of Genesis, I realized that I, I, I think I missed something in March when I preached this text. Because I saw something this time around that caught my eye differently. Now there's seven verses that kicks off chapter 6 that are filled with human depravity. It's heartbreaking. The author is painstakingly sharing with us how depraved humankind had become. But then there's something that happens in verse 8. And I think Moses wanted us to see this. And I don't think I fully appreciated this a month ago. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 8. A small verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see what I failed to see four weeks ago? Do you see what I didn't fully appreciate the last time we were on this text? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the first seven verses of the chapter detail the deprave, depravity of humankind. But, but it comes to an incredible conclusion here in verse 8. And I think that Moses, when he wrote this, God, when he inspired Moses to write this, wanted us to see this incredible thing here in verse 8. Noah is someone who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as we work through our text this week to the rest of chapter 6, we're going to see what were some of the things that were unique to Noah that may have contributed to him finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. One preacher says that Noah was the first fully formed figure who found God's favor. That preacher likes alliteration. Another preacher said Noah was a full-dimensional, remarkably complete man. And as Noah finds God's favor, there are broader implications for you and for me here today. Do you see it? Do you understand what this means? Well, if Noah, a fallen man, found favor with God, that means it's possible for you and me to find favor with God. In the midst of the horrors of human depravity in the world then and in the world today, depravity that grieves the very heart of God, you and I can find the favor of God. The question is, to who does God find favor? To whom does he look upon who has found his favor? What are the characteristics of those with whom God's favor rests? That word favor is connected to the word grace. A more robust understanding of God's favor would be a demonstrated delight. The favor of God is experienced in his demonstrated delight toward those he favors. And God favors as a result of his grace. So the question is, who are those today with whom God has demonstrated his delight? Who are those who have received the approval of the Lord? Let's put a pin in that question. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But let's look now at Noah in this interaction he and God have through the sixth chapter of Genesis. Noah was a man who had received the favor of God. Noah was exemplary in many ways. Let's look at these 14 verses. Begin by going back with me to just verses 9 and 10. Look at what it says about Noah here. These are the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are incredible words used to describe Noah here. These words aren't thrown around in the Bible to describe other human beings. Noah is uh, described as a righteous man. He's a man who's blameless in his generation. He's walked with God. And so as we think about these descriptors of Noah, it's not hard to understand now why maybe God found favor with Noah. He was a righteous guy. He was blameless. He walked intimately with God. He found the favor of God. And there's other parts of Scripture that give us insight into what was going on in Noah's world. We can go all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews kind of provides some commentary as he's speaking about the faith of Noah. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, the author of Hebrews looks back at this righteous, blameless man who walks with God, and he he interprets this man through the lens of faith. His righteousness and his blamelessness and his faithful walk was the fruit of, of his faith. The most exemplary thing about Noah was his faith. And a righteous and blameless God who, who he, he, his faith was a reflection of the God whom he placed his faith in. And so here's the first thing I want you to see. As we engage in our text today, there's going to be a lot of little points along this journey. Here's the first thing I want you to pay attention to. If you take notes, you can take notes. The first thing we see as our eyes go to this text is we see a faithful Noah. The first thing we see is we see a faithful Noah. I can't really overstate Noah's faithfulness here. And think about the fact that he is the only faithful one. I mean, as God looked at all the human beings on all of planet Earth, they were wickedly depraved, and yet the only person on the entire Earth is this faithful man. The only faithful man on this entire Earth is Noah. One one uh, commentator says that in a corrupt world... Noah emerges not merely as the best of a bad generation, but as a remarkably complete man of God. It's incredible. His righteousness is about his relationships towards other human beings. He was just, he was lawful, he was righteous. It was a man-word righteousness. And and he was living in a world where that wasn't going to be reciprocated, right? It was a deeply depraved and broken world. When we hear about the blamelessness of of Noah, this, this refers to his relationship with God. In this word, blameless, it's, it's an incredible word. It means literally without blemish, complete, full, perfect. It's, just, it's blameless. And yet we know that Noah wasn't perfect. And we can skip ahead to chapter 9 and we see that he wasn't perfect, that he was a sinful man, that he brought sin onto the ark and he brought sin off the ark. So he's not perfect. Here's what one commentator says. Noah, of course, was not sinless, but his conduct was blameless despite the evil context within which he lived. The demonized culture did not divert or pervert him, nor could it indict him. He was the one bright spot among the numberless darkened souls of the primeval world. He was a man who was righteous among his peers. He was blameless before God. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that Noah also was a herald of righteousness which means he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was actually proclaiming a righteous message to the world around him that was depraved and spiraling out of control. So I, I think about this man who walked with God. What was it like for him? As I think about the righteousness of Noah, I see him in a woefully unrighteous world. As I think about the blamelessness of Noah, I see him in a condemned world, a rightly condemned world. As I consider the, the godliness of Noah, 
I, I look at him in a godless world, and I see him as entirely set apart. There's none like him. He was different then. He was unlike the corruption around him. He was set apart. And as I think about this being the case for Noah, it reminds me of this, the, the word holiness or to be holy. A simple definition of holiness is, is set apart for sacred use. If you think about temple worship, there were these instruments that were used in temple worship and they would be consecrated and purified for, for holy use, for use in worship. That's what holy means, set, a, set apart for sacred use. And as I look at, at Noah, I see him set apart. And then I think about us today. We're gathered in this room and we, we as, as believers, we are, we're called to pursue personal holiness as well. We're called in the Bible to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, according to Philippians 2. This is an exhortation that Paul gives to the Philippians to, to day by day, not in an erotic way trying to earn God's love, but as an act of worship, trust God and day by day pursue Him and pursue holiness. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. This reminds us as we pursue holiness, as we pursue Jesus, as we, as we, as we seek to be conformed to His image, it's not just an external thing. 2 Corinthians 7.1 reminds us that holiness provides purification for all aspects of life, both our inner world and our outer world. The Bible warns the church to guard against even a hint of immorality among the saints in Ephesians 5.3. So as the body of Christ, as we look around, we are to fight for each other's holiness. As Jeremy talked about the men's groups, and I think of the women's groups, and I think of huddle, and I think of us gathering in each other's homes and, and developing relationship with another, we, we are to fight for one another's holiness as the body of Christ. I'm not talking about a godless moralism where we earn God's favor apart from the gospel. I'm, not, I'm talking about the Christian who has been declared righteous through Christ and as one who has been declared righteous continually seeking after God that they might be conformed into the image of Jesus. People who've been made righteous by Christ who humbly pursue the heart of God, the character of Jesus. They desire holiness more than fleshly indulgence. I read this week that we avoid the temptation to become self-righteous when we understand that true righteousness begins with godly humility. We remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We, when we spend time in the presence of God, we become more aware of our sin and our shortcomings. And so we're called to live these faithful lives, this life of pursuit, this light of pursuing holiness with a humble heart. We, we are to continually seek the presence of God with humble, believing hearts. We, 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 are, seek, we are to seek to lead, lead a lifestyle of righteous action that is acceptable to God. This is on whom God's favor falls. And we see it lived out in Noah. He was a faithful man. As we continue to scan the text, we, we go to verses 12 and 13 or rather, 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so we see the stark contrast between the righteous and blameless Noah and the, just the depravity of the world in which he lived. Three times this word corrupt comes up. And so that reminds us the second thing we see is a corrupt world. We, we see a faithful Noah, and then we see a corrupt world in verses 11 through 12. This is just an expansion of what we read uh, in the first eight verses of this chapter. Remember, verses 5 and 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And so as we look at the way God speaks about the people on the earth, we see great wickedness that exists within them. We see every intention of their heart is is evil continually. We see that there is corruption that is absolutely complete. The world is filled with violence. That word for corruption means to be uh, decayed, to decay, to rot. The, The use of this word here makes it plain that what God decided to destroy in the flood had been virtually self-destroyed already. My wife, her family has these 40 acres in northern Wisconsin, and it was her tradition as a child growing up where they would leave the Milwaukee area, and they'd go up into the north woods of Wisconsin to their land. And there was this little cottage there that they would spend time in, and they would hunt and play, and it was just like her favorite memories as a child were going up to this land. And then when I joined the family, I got to go up to the up north land. And there was a cottage when I first married Becky, but it was it was no longer, uh, you couldn't live in it. The Fieldstone Foundation had crumbled. The house was crumbling. There was mold. It was decaying. And so I never got to actually be in the cabin. And then one year, Becky's dad uh, was tired of looking at this cabin. It was, it, was, it was useless. It was fully decayed. And so he just enlisted the strength of his son-in-laws to take chainsaws and sledgehammers and pickaxes and, and just destroy it and have it collapse on itself. We lit it on fire and it burned up. That picture of a decaying, useless cottage that just needed to be destroyed is the picture of God looking at the depravity of humankind on the earth. When he decides to enact this judgment of a flood, it was a world that was already fully corrupted, fully decayed. God was just doing what was already destined for them because of their own choice. This is the idea behind the corruption of the world here in Genesis chapter 6. But we see a faithful Noah. We see a corrupt world. Genesis six thirteen, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. He says these really hard words, I will destroy them with the earth. I will destroy them with the earth. This is just really ominous language. And so the third thing we see is the coming judgment. We see faithful Noah, we see a corrupt world, and now we see a coming judgment. This is the same judgment he reiterates now in verse 17. He says, Behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth, destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is in under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verses 13 and 17 sandwich the instructions God gives for the ark. We'll get to that here in a minute. But God makes it clear that a global flood is coming as an act of judgment, just judgment. They're harsh words. And God has determined, he has set his heart and his mind on doing this. I have determined, he says, I will destroy, he says, I will bring a flood to destroy. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Man, we hear that and it's hard for us to hear those languages. I thought thought God was a loving God. I thought he was a a gracious God. I thought he was abounding in love and patient. And, And as we read this coming judgment, it's hard. We have to remember that God is a just God. And as we, as we see this coming judgment, we also have to read it in light of what we read in the first part of chapter 6, that the very heart of God was grieved. He's not just an angry, angry God. He is a God whose heart is broken over the, the, the depravity of the people whom he loves. They've turned their back on him. They've turned their own way. And he's given them over to their depravity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So as the text moves, we see a faithful Noah, a corrupt world, a coming judgment. Let's look at verses 14 through 16, the instructions here for the ark. 
God says to Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover the inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, and the length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. This is a very specific set of instructions for the ark that God gives, and this is a massive vessel. A cubit is about 18 inches, which means that this vessel is about 450 feet long, one and a half football fields, about 75 feet wide, about four stories high. It was a massive wooden barge. People have done the math on this, and, and it would displace 43,000 tons. The inside capacity of the ark is 1.4 million cubic feet. There's almost 100,000 feet of deck area in the ark. This is massive vessel. And it was designed to preserve life. It's a picture of God's grace. It's designed to save Noah and his family from the floodwater. So the fourth thing we see is we see a saving ark. We see faithful Noah. We see a corrupt world. We see a coming judgment. And here we see a saving ark. I think back to my first experience with Noah's ark. My dad went through this phase when I was a kid where he decided he was going to read me Genesis. It lasted like two days, but we got to the flood account. And I can remember being like eight years old, and my dad had this old black leather-bound King James Bible. And I had never heard the story of Noah's Ark at this point. I can remember laying in my bed and my dad reading the story, and I was trying to imagine this, this scene. And we're going to read it over the next several weeks as the flood comes and the animals come. It's an incredible account. And then, you know, as you move on in life and you go to the bookstore and you get Hallmark cards and you see these cute depictions of this little boat with the giraffe head sticking out, we have sanitized this story. We don't think about the reality of this story. Think about the reality of this story. Noah was the only righteous man on all the earth. Everybody had turned their back on God and was 100% fully involving themselves in just sexual depravity that just broke the heart of God. And, and in the midst of this madness, in the midst of this decay of society, this cultural downward spiral, Moses, or Noah hears the voice of God. And he makes a decision to respond in obedience to the voice of God. What was the first day like when Noah grabbed his hammer? What was the first day like when Noah got up and he grabbed the saw and he starts heading out into the woods? I mean, there was a day, there was a moment, there was a time when he thought, I'm going to build a 450-foot boat? There's no water. And he takes off into the woods and he starts to build. What do people say to him? How is he treated by his peers? I mean, this is a massive vessel. There's no cranes, no log trucks, no front end loaders, no chainsaws. Can you imagine the ridicule this man would have received from his peers? Everyone upon everyone would have thought he was a lunatic. Remember the condition of the culture. Sexual depravity everywhere you turn. Absolute absolute depravity in every sense of the word. And it was normalized. And it was so normalized that, it, that, that Noah would have been singled out as the weirdo, as the freak show, as the lunatic, because he wasn't involving himself in the perversion of the world. Godlessness was not the path that he chose, even though that was the way of the world. Can you imagine the persecution he would have received? Can you imagine how difficult it would have been? I can imagine, I don't know, the scriptures don't tell us this, but I, there had to have been days, right? There had to have been days when he's got blisters on his hand, his back is aching. The sun has baked his shoulders. 30 years in, 40 years into this project, dragging logs, trying to get his sons up to help him. There had to be days where he thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? I mean, did God speak to him every day? Did he go decades without hearing God? It's incredible to think about it. 
As we think about the, the detailed instructions that God gives Noah here in chapter 6, there are similarities with, with uh, some other places within the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. There's similarity uh, in what God says to Noah here to what happens in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and also in the account of the tabernacle that happens in Exodus 25 through 39. In all three instances, in the creation account, the, the ark account, and the tabernacle account, there's this kind of discernible pattern that emerges. God, God speaks, and then we see God acting upon what he says, and the command is carried out according to his will, and then each episode comes with God's blessing. That's a pattern that we see here in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. And then when you look at the account of the building of the ark, and the account of the building of the tabernacle that took place in Exodus, in both instances, blessing is divinely ordained. There's like this covenant that's connected with this thing that God says. I read this week that like Moses, Noah followed closely the commands of God and in so doing found salvation and blessing in his covenant. Listen to what one, here's what one scholar says about the building of the ark and the building of the tabernacle. I find this interesting. The author's purpose, Moses' purpose in drawing out these lists of specifications in both accounts of the ark in chapter 6 and also of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. These details are not there that you and I as readers might be able to see what the ark or tabernacle looked like. Those details are not put in the scriptures that we might have every human curiosity satisfied. But the details are there in Genesis 6 and in Exodus that we as readers might appreciate the meticulous care with which these godly and exemplary individuals went about their tasks of obedience to God's will. In a crazy world, they obeyed with all their hearts. And so we see this, this movement, a faithful Noah, a corrupt world, a coming judgment, and a saving ark. Let's go back and look at the, the, the words of God in verses 17 through 22. God says to, to Noah, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort of, in, every sort into the ark, and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort of animal shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that, commanded, that God commanded him. Pay, pay attention to that phrase in verse 18 where God says, But I will establish my covenant with you. I think the temptation when reading this account of Noah, at least it is for me, is to really hyper-focus on the obedience of Noah because it's incredible. It's an incredible obedience. I think sometimes our temptation might be just to look at Noah and see him as the hero of this passage. But if we do that, if we hyper-focus on the human activity of Noah, we lose sight of who the real hero is of this, of this word. This, this phrase, but I will establish my covenant to you. This is God who is working with Noah, who is doing a thing, who has invited Noah into this thing that he is doing. God is the one who Noah is responding to. God is the one who is the object of his faith. God is the one who has enacted a plan of salvation. God is the one who is the hero of this passage. He is the one that is creating a covenant with Noah that, that there might be salvation. And so the, the, the fifth thing I want you to notice is a gracious covenant. This is God in his grace pouring his favor upon Noah and establishing a covenant with him. 
At its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. This is God having an oath-bound relationship with Noah here in chapter 6. It's, it's God's covenant promise of salvation. God in His grace here is promising not to destroy the world by water again. He's promising to, to preserve Noah and his family. It's not until the floodwaters subside in chapter 9 that we get more of the particulars of this covenant and the covenant sign, which was the rainbow. But as I think about, well, why, why, why this covenant? So why, why, did God, why didn't God just look at the earth and say, ugh, just one guy out of all of them, I'm done. Why did he have grace for Noah? Why did he pour his favor upon Noah? We've got to remember the context here of Genesis. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3? We come back to this all the time. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God was speaking to the serpent after the fall, do you remember what God said? He said to the, the serpent that, that there would be enmity between the serpent and the seed of Eve, and that the serpent would bruise the heel of that promised seed, but that promised seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. This is the first preaching of the gospel. This points us to Jesus. And then we see the depravity of the story, chapter 4, Cain and his, his family just doing awful things. We see chapter 6, perversion, horrible perversion taking place on the face of the earth. And, and so God is looking at the, 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 the depravity of the world, and he has got the, he's got this promise. There's a line from Eve that's going to lead to Jesus. And as there's this, 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 this perversion and this sexual exploration that is just so grievous to God, there is a, there's a chance or there's a fear that this promised line would be contaminated. That, and there's, there's scholars that even believe that, that the, the, the enemy was behind the perversion that was taking place in Genesis chapter 6 for the sole purpose of stopping the promised line that would lead to the head-crushing Messiah. And so God in His grace, He sees all this taking place and He sees there's one righteous man. He plucks him up out of the depravity. He says, it's going to be through you. The promise I made in Genesis chapter 3 is going to go through you and your family, Noah. Everyone else is going to get wiped out. The floodwaters are going to secede. You're going to step off that ark and it's going to go through you to Abraham, to David, to Jesus Christ who will in fact crush the seed of the serpent. It's God in His grace, in His covenant grace preserving His promise. It's an incredible story. And we see God in his faithfulness here. He, we, we see a faithful Noah responding to a faithful God. We see this corrupt world all around Noah. God speaks a, a just coming judgment. He, he gives a, a instructions for a saving ark. He establishes a gracious covenant. And we've got to look again one more time at verse 22. Noah did this. All of it. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. How hard was that for Noah to do that? But we see at the end, the sixth thing we see in verse 22, again, is a faithful Noah. We started with a faithful Noah. We end with a faithful Noah. The object of Noah's faith is not his own self-will. Noah is not his own hero or his own savior. Noah's faith is directed towards God, a saving God, a covenant-making, promise-keeping God. Noah's faith was in this promise of God. God is the hero of the story. For as long as a century, some scholars believe, he labored at building this ark, holding on to the word of God. Holding on to the bare word of God. God spoke to him this word. Noah holds on to it and walks in faithfulness. Operating in faith that God was going to do what he said he's going to do. God gave Noah two things. Detailed instructions for how to build a life-saving, promise-protecting ark. And God gave Noah the covenant promise of salvation. And it was Noah's faith that was exemplary. In this God, who's worthy of faith. By faith, the author of Hebrews tells us. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. So it was the faithfulness of Noah that earned him the favor of God. That's not even probably the right way of saying it. It was God's grace upon Noah that resulted in his faithfulness. Noah was holy, but he wasn't sinless. And as we look at this text, we're not to elevate Noah. He's not the hero of the text. God is. But Noah points us to, to Noah was righteous and blameless in his time, in his generation, for a season. He, he sinned, and he was a sinful man. But when we think about a righteous, blameless deliverer, what do we think of? Doesn't Noah, isn't he a giant arrow pointing us to Jesus? Jesus was the only truly righteous and blameless one. And and there's multiple ways this story points us to the gospel or points us to Jesus. I want to share three. The New Testament talks about Noah's flood as being a a precursor to the return of Christ. And so we we can know that one day Christ is going to return. And just like in Noah's day, people today will ignore the pleas of Jesus for repentance Just like in Noah's day, people will choose instead the trivial pleasures of life instead of pursuing Christ. This willful ignorance will not deter the worldwide judgment that is one day coming when Jesus returns. Just like in Noah's day, the the rebellion of the unbelieving masses will incur judgment. Not with water, but the scriptures talk about in the New Testament with fire. Second way in which this passage points us to Jesus or points us to the gospel is Noah's ark points to the salvation that Jesus brings. Listen to what one scholar writes. I think this is profound. Listen to this. While a wooden ark delivered Noah from physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from spiritual death. Just as Noah obeyed God by climbing into a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a cross to save many. And lastly, Noah's failure, because ultimately Noah fails, it points us to the victory we have in Christ. Jesus became the man that Adam chose not to be. Jesus became the man that Noah never could be. Adam was born without sin, but he chose to sin. Noah was born into sin, and he could never escape it. Instead of temporarily obeying his father, only to succumb to failure, Jesus obeyed completely and perfectly. And one day, Jesus will judge sin and Satan. And one day, the new creation that Christ will bring in, will usher in, it will surpass what Noah received after the floodwaters receded. And one day, this new heavens and this new earth that awaits all who are in Christ, it it is greater than even what Adam experienced when he was on the earth before sin. So we see this movement in the text. It's just a faithful Noah, a corrupt world, a coming judgment, a saving ark, a gracious covenant. Again, a faithful Noah. This text is about a gracious, saving, covenant-making God in the midst of a corrupt world. This text is about Noah's faithfulness in a God who is worthy of faith. So the question I ask is, how, how do we receive the favor of God? On whom does God's, rest, God's favor rest today? Favor and grace are, 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 are intertwined. And so here's the truth. On whom does God's favor rest today in this place? Well, it rests on all those who have received Jesus as Savior and who are saved by grace through faith. Those who have been saved by grace are those who know the favor of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the author of Hebrews tells us. And all those who have saving faith in God's Son are declared righteous. 
and all who've been declared righteous live in the favor of God. If you're in Christ today, if you have trusted Christ today, if he is your Lord and your Savior, you are a recipient of the favor of God. So the most basic answer to the question, how can I get God's favor? Is to believe in the Lord Jesus. To believe in the Lord Jesus. And he's done the work necessary. I found myself this week uh, drawn to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, a well-known passage that I want to finish with. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 8 and 9. L- listen to these words. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, we are not compulsively to toil about neurotically working our fingers to the bone in an attempt to earn God's favor. God freely extends his favor to all who turn to him in faith. This is the gift of God. It's not a result of your works. Otherwise, you could brag about it. You would earn your own salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You're in desperate need of the grace of God, just like Noah was. But there is a place for faithful work in the life of the believer. Listen to this text, including verse 10. I'll start again in verse 8. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has saved us, redeemed us, restored us, and prepared us and molded us to walk in good works that he's even prepared in advance for us to do. We don't earn God's favor. It's a gift. Christ has worked on our behalf. We receive this gift through faith in Christ by simply believing in the work of Christ. We believe that what God has done through his son Jesus is sufficient. But on the other hand, we're created by God to do good works. Good works that aren't a concoction of our own imaginations. These good works are works that God has ultimately fashioned you to do and me to do. He's laid them out for us to walk in them as an act of worship. When I look at Noah walking with God in verse 9, I see him faithfully doing the good works that God prepared for him in advance to do. God gives him this work to do. Build this ark. Do this thing. You're the recipient of this covenant. Walk in that. And he does. Our text opens and closes focusing on the faithfulness of Noah. And his faithfulness is rooted entirely in God. So what does this mean for us today? Well, by grace, you are saved through faith. For those of you that have trusted in Christ, by grace, you are saved through faith. By grace, you have received God's favor through faith. And as a saved, redeemed person whose name is etched in the Lamb's book of life, who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus through the grace of God, who has received the favor of God, God has work for you to do. Not neurotically to try to earn his favor, God has work for you to do that was designed by him, laid out before you for you to walk in as an act of worship that he would receive the glory. God has work for you to do. These works that God has prepared for us are are handcrafted that we might walk in them. And I, and I, and I, when we preach gospel-centered preaching and we see this text clearly points us to the, 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 the sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. We see the gospel even in this Old Testament passage and we, we, we bask in the truth of the gospel that we have been saved through the, the work of Christ. We're saved by faith. Just like Noah was saved by faith, just like the authors of Hebrews says. 
And yet you and I are on planet Earth. We're in the already, not yet. We have been given uh, uh, marching orders by God. He's, been, he's given us works to do. And so as we sit here today, I just want to encourage you, church. Remind yourselves constantly of this tremendous gift of Christ's righteousness. Let it renew your mind. Focus on it. Think about it. This is an amazing gift that God has given you. As you remind yourself of the righteousness of Christ that covers you, that redeems you, that saves you, that purifies you, that emboldens you. You lift your eyes if you see the world around you that you might see the works that God has laid out for you that you might walk in them. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on the words. Noah heard the word of God and it was the bare word of God that sustained him through this entire endeavor. God has given us his word. We sit in church on Sunday under the preached word. Meditate on this word. Open up this word. Read this word. Consume this word. Let it speak to you. Let it renew your soul that you might walk in obedience and surround yourself with those who will sharpen you and encourage you and rebuke you if need to be rebuked. Hold you up when you need to be held up celebrate when you need to celebrate, walk alongside you through the valleys when you walk through the valleys. Be in biblical community. Now here at Heritage, we, we're, we're still moving through the, the COVID problem. It's been a challenge for us, no doubt. And, and our huddle groups have sort of waned in this season. We've got some really great men's groups going, some great women's groups going, some of the huddle groups are going. We've got, we've got uh, Mighty Oaks. There's opportunities to find community. But can I tell you a little bit of a secret about what's happening at Heritage? What we've been doing for the last six months, we've been kind of, our commitment has been, let's just keep things going as usual at Heritage, the way they've been going for a long time. Let's not rock the boat just yet, pardon the pun. But behind closed doors, the staff of Heritage and the elders of Heritage are working so hard, seeking the Lord, trying to seek how God might have us to move forward, that we can continue to raise up disciples, that we can continue to empower and equip and embolden the people of Heritage to walk in these good works that God has prepared in advance for that the people of heritage might, might worship God and, and, and we might raise up disciples to be sent out to raise up more disciples, to be sent out to raise up more disciples. We're dreaming about this. We're praying about this. We're planning about this. We're giving our plans to God. And one of the things that we need to do at heritage is we need to create communities, discipleship communities, where, where we don't just sit in rows and listen to one guy talk, but we sit in circles and we invest in each other's lives we get to know one another. We speak encouraging words and words of rebuke. We listen and love one another. We sharpen one another. We want to create a robust place, a, dis- a place of discipleship communities where the people of heritage are studying the word of God, gathered around the word of God, listening to the word of God, loving one another, being raised up that we might send out disciples who make disciples, who make disciples for the glory of God. That's our dream. So we're working really hard. We're working really hard to have a lot of these pieces in place by September. And so I want to encourage you, listen to me, look at me. If you've been going to Heritage for any length of time, and you are, we've been walking with God for any length of time, if you love Jesus, I'm encouraging you to start thinking about what it looks like for you to not sit on your hands. We need people like you to raise up, to step into positions of leadership, to, 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 to lead and shepherd discipleship communities where the family of God can gather and grow in the word of God. We need you. So if you're someone who's mature in your faith or you're going or you have a desire to serve in this way, you have some maturity, some understanding of God's word, or you don't but you want to be developed in that area, there's going to be an email up on the board. It's Pastor Jeremy. I think it's going to be up on the board. 
Maybe not. There we go. Pastor Jeremy. So Pastor Jeremy is our pa- he, he's, he oversees all discipleship communities here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. He is working so hard with the elders and the other staff to, to, to do all the work we need to do now so that by September we might have a robust offering of discipleship communities for the people of God to go from sitting in rows to going in circles to growing together. Is God prompting you to be one of those people who leads one of those groups? Would you please consider this? Would you please consider, if God is prompting you on any level, would you consider this? I would encourage you to write down Jeremy's email. We're going to leave that up. And send him an email. Say, hey, Jeremy, can we have a conversation? You're not committing to anything. But you think, you know, this might be me. Or maybe I can help in some other capacity. Email Jeremy. Talk to him after the service. Talk to me. Because we want, to be, we, we, we want to be set apart for sacred use. We want God to use us. We want to be a holy people that glorifies God. We want to raise up disciples who love Jesus, know the gospel, and are sent out from beyond the walls of this church to, to, to raise up disciples who are sent out for the glory of God, who raise up disciples. That's what the church is to do. That's what the church has done for 2,000 years. Would you help us in that endeavor? Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for this word. I'm thankful that we can peer into the scriptures and we can look at the faithfulness of Noah, we can consider the faithfulness of Noah, but, but beyond that, God, we can look at you, a, a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, saving, gracious God, and we can even look at this, this text and we, can, and we can see how it is a giant arrow that points us to the cross of Christ who was obedient on our behalf, who, who bore our sins on the cross, who, who, who paid the penalty that our sin deserves, who died the death that we deserve to die, who rose to life, and who now offers us forgiveness and grace and new life. God, would you, would you renew our hearts and minds in the gospel today? And God, I pray for those men and women in our midst who you have been preparing and equipping to step into a position of spiritual leadership here in our church. God, would you prompt them? Would you bring conviction and excitement Enjoy about the thought of being used by you to raise up disciples for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you we can gather around your word. We can lift up our voices. We can exalt you and worship you. God, we want you to be made much of in this place. God, hear our, our songs of praise. Be glorified in them in Jesus' name. Amen.